0: Good morning, church. It's Palm Sunday, the day we celebrate triumphal entry, the day that uh, was prophesied about in Zechariah of, not just Zechariah, but Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was a day that was also prophesied about in Daniel. I don't know if you guys have ever been through this, but this is about the 77s. And it was uh, the day the Messiah, the prince, would come. And in Daniel 9.25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, which was the Messiah, that's what it's referring to, there shall be 7 weeks and then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats but in a troubled time so what it's saying is god's time clock to send the messiah would start the day that the commandment went forth to restore and rebuild jerusalem and from that day it would be a 69 7 year cycle okay 69 7 year cycle Cycles until the Messiah would appear. So if you do the math based on the Babylonian calendar of about 360 days a year, that would mean 173,880 days after the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem that the Messiah would come. Well, the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem was given in the book of Nehemiah. And in the book of Nehemiah, It went forth from the Persian king Artaxerxes to Nehemiah in the month of Nisan, or if we were to try to put it into a calendar today, that would be March 14th, 445 BC, to restore the walls of Jerusalem. So you take that date as the starting point, and you count ahead, 173,880 days, and it brings us to April 6th, 32 AD. Which happens to be, by no coincidence, the very same day that we celebrate today, Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. It's found in all four Gospels. It's been found in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19. And we're going to read from John 12 this morning. Most people usually read from Luke. I think we've read from all of them. We're going to read from John this morning. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. I have a very long message. I did my best to shorten it. I went through it many times trying to bring it down so that you would get home before lunch. I make no promises. Hopefully. (laughs) Anyway. Starting in verse 12. John chapter 12. says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it was written, fear not daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming sitting on the donkey's colt. Verse 16 says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he raised Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this day. And I pray, Lord, that you just speak your words in our hearts this morning and draw us closer to you. And Lord, I pray you just continue to reveal yourself to us and help us come to the understanding of who Jesus is, why Jesus came, and the importance of what he did in our lives, and how we can share that with others. We just thank you, Lord. We just give this to you. We put it in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to be looking at this morning is, I borrowed a name from a movie. I don't know if you've seen it yet, the Jesus Revolution movie. It's a very good movie. If you haven't seen it, go see it. I've seen it a couple of times, and we're thinking of possibly getting it and doing another movie here for the people who haven't seen it, for those who want to see it. I know there's some, Eddie and Jana haven't seen it, they want to see it. Um, And some of the youth want to see it too. So anyway, we're not talking about the movie, I just borrowed the title. I borrowed it for this message today because what we're looking at this morning is that we're looking at uh, Jesus. And Jesus came for a purpose and he rode into Jerusalem purposefully and his, I mean, his face, it tells us, was set towards the cross. Right? He knew his mission. He was obedient to the will of the Father. So he came to seek and save the lost. He came for the sick and needy. He came for those who were seeking him. He came for those who needed him. And within that, what he did is he started a revolution. Now, when we start using words like revolution and revolutionary and even insurrection and resurrection... People start getting nervous. Some people don't like those words. Insurrection and resurrection are related by a Latin term, insurge, or surge, I think, is the actual term that they both share. Yeah, surgere, right? And so you put in before it, that gives you the root for the word insurrection. You've put re before it, it gives you the root for the word resurrection. And they both come from that same word, surgere, which means to rise. Now, we know that resurrection means to, ri- to rise again. And we understand, obviously, you know, spoiler alert, come back next week. Resurrection, you know, what we'll be celebrating next week when we talk about Easter and how that plays into this. But you have to understand that Jesus came, he, he, he was revolutionary. There had been no one like Jesus that had come up, to, up, until, this, up until this point. Now, he wasn't a political revolutionary, and that's where we tend to think. As soon as we say the word revolutionary, or even as soon as we say the word insurrection, we start thinking political. And even the disciples thought that, because you have to remember the disciples asked Jesus, hey, when are you going to overthrow Rome and kick out the Romans and restore Jerusalem to the way it was? When's that going to happen? This is what we're expecting. You're the Messiah, right? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the time or the hour for these things. Notice he never said No. I'm not doing that. But that wasn't why he came then. That's why he'll come again. He's going to set up his kingdom. Jerusalem will be restored. It's the millennial reign. We're not there yet. But we tend to think of revolutions and revolutionary and insurrections and all these type of things as political. It wasn't political. But however, Jesus was a rebel. As soon as he came and as soon as he started doing miracles and as soon as it started, the word started getting out, about Jesus. People were threatened. People were threatened by his birth. Herod was threatened by the birth of Jesus. As soon as they said, well, possibly the king of the Jews is being born, Herod was like, kill all the children. He was threatened by Jesus at his birth. People are threatened by Jesus during his ministry. He threatened the status quo. And he came to start an insurrection. It's just not a political insurrection. It was an insurrection that was rising up against sin and death. He came for what we truly needed, not what we were looking for, right? The bondage of sin and the penalty of sin, which is death. And of course, we know he defeats that through his resurrection. So he came to take us out of our grave clothes, right? He came to give us a new life through him. He came to redeem us and to reconcile us back to God the Father. And his whole ministry testifies to this, and it testifies to who he is. And this morning, we're going to be looking at some of the revolutionary things that Jesus did, including today, Palm Sunday. We'll get there, right? So I'm going to start with a simple thing, right? Look at some of the revolutionary things that he did. We're going to start with a simple, if you want to call it simple, right? We're going to look at the fact that Jesus performed miracles. Now, miracles were not an everyday occurrence, right? They're not an everyday occurrence today. Miracles still happen. They have not gone away. God is still performing miracles. But they weren't an everyday occurrence. Now, at Jesus' time, there may have been a lot of magicians traveling around and putting on shows and a lot of charlatans and con artists, Uh, Why did my, there we go, Uh, selling miracle cures and, and stuff like that, but were there actual true miracle makers? No, not really. See, a miracle is from God and done by the power of God for the glory of God, not for the glory of man. And if you see miracles being done by a man just to make a name for the man, just to make a name for himself, like he was coming next weekend here to Everett, right? Benny Hinn. Sadly, the odds are they aren't miracles. They're just magic acts, right? They're just illusions. They're just false healings. They're just con jobs. He's out to make a name for himself. It's not for the glory of God. Now we see miracles throughout the whole Bible, we see amazing miracles, right? From Genesis to Revelation, God parted the Red Sea. There's water coming forth from a rock. There's manna falling from heaven. A donkey speaks. I was just thinking about that today. What if Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a speaking donkey? And immediately I started thinking of Shrek, and I said, no, I should probably not think, shouldn't, shouldn't go down that path because it's, it's not an, a Shrek movie. Right? But, you know, a donkey speaks, the walls of Jericho fall down, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, there's Daniel in the lion's den, there's Jonah in the whale. I mean, you can go on and on and on. These are just Old Testament things that happen. There's many, 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 many more that happened. But then from the last words of the Old Testament to the birth of Christ in the New Testament, you have what we call this 400 years of silence. Okay? There was 400 years where we have no, nothing written down biblically about what happened. No scripture written. So I'm not going to say that, you know, so they say that's the time that God didn't speak to his people. Nothing was written down. Now, I'm not going to say that God didn't perform miracles during that time. I'm just going to say that maybe he just did it on a smaller, more personal level with people and not in the big glorious way that it got written down and, and put into the Bible. But we have nothing recorded biblically speaking during that 400 years of time. And then Jesus came, right? And Jesus performed miracles. And Jesus was not a magician. And Jesus was not a charlatan. And Jesus was not a con man. Right, he called himself the son of man. That's a messianic term. That was how he liked to refer to himself. When he called himself the son of man, people understood what he was referring to, who he was claiming to be. Jesus turned water into wine. Jesus made the lame walk. Jesus made the blind see. Jesus cured leprosy. He healed people from all kinds of sicknesses. He walked on water. He put someone's ear back on. I mean, serious. He cast out demons. He fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. Do the math, it doesn't work. It's a miracle, right? He cursed a fig tree. That was a miracle too, believe it or not, right? I mean, it says that Jesus had done so many miracles and amazed so many people with his teaching. If you're in John chapter seven, for, for example, when he's speaking in the, in the temple, people are saying that they haven't accepted Jesus as the Messiah yet. And people are watching what Jesus is doing teaching, listening to what Jesus is teaching, and they have seen all the miracles that Jesus does. And they say in chapter, John chapter 7, when the Messiah comes, is he going to be able to do as many miracles as this Jesus has? Right? They were so amazed at Jesus, they weren't sure that if the Messiah came, that he could outdo what Jesus was doing. It tells us in John twenty-one twenty-five that says that now there are also Many other things that Jesus did were, if we were to write every one of them down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books in which they would be written. That's a lot of miracles. In other words, what it means is that Jesus blew the roof off the joint, right, with the miracles that he performed. Now, we can't look at every single miracle he did. Obviously, we would be here till the end of the year. But we're going to start by looking at a simple one, if we can call it that, before we get into some of the more controversial radical revolutionary miracles. We're going to look at a real simple miracle, and it's in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And if you want to try and keep up with me, you can, but you don't have to by any means. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, this is when Jesus heals a blind man. And I'm just going to read it really quick. And I'm not going to read all these verses I give to you just for time, but I'm going to read this one. And says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, this is a very important answer. Pay attention to it. He answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me well it is day. Night is coming and when no, one, when no one can work, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. There's a couple of key things, like I said, to take note of in this passage. One, the disciples assumed that the man was blind due to sin, right? It was either his sin or his parents' sin that caused the man's blindness. And Jesus said, no, that's not true. Sin didn't cause this blindness. It was a physical affirmative. He was just blind from birth. It had nothing to do with sin. Why do we assume that some of the punishments that we go through, maybe even health-related, are caused by sin? Not now. I'm telling you this so you understand that if you're going through any physical issues right now and you think, what have I done to deserve this? Why has God punished me like this? God is not punishing you. God took your punishment on the cross. Anything that you're going through does not have to do with your sin. As far as that's concerned. But Jesus told his disciples, he said, listen, it was not that this man sinned. His parents didn't sin either. This has nothing to do with the guy's sin. Why is this guy blind? And let me tell you why he's blind. So that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know, the works of God can be displayed in him whether Jesus healed him or not. But the works of God were displayed in him because Jesus healed him. Now, when Jesus healed the man, it was on the Sabbath. Uh-oh, right? It's It's taboo. And when the religious leaders, the Pharisees, quote unquote, if you continue on with the story, when they find out that this blind man was healed and he had been healed on the Sabbath, they call him in for questioning, right? They have their goons pick him up and they bring him into the office and they shine the light on his face there and in, the, in the room and they're like, who healed you, right? Who healed you on the Sabbath? And he's like, I, I don't know, right? And matter of fact, they don't even think he'd been blind. You're faking this whole thing, Right? You never were blind to begin with. They even call in his parents. Has your son really, truly been blind since birth? And they're like, yes, he has been. We think he's faking it, right? And so you find out at this time that if any Jews were to confess that they believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that they would be put out of the synagogue. They would be excommunicated, basically. So we see already Jesus is a threat. Right? He was already a threat. So the, foresee, the, Pharisee, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they ask the blind man, they say, who did this to you? Who healed you? They keep questioning him. And, and if you remember his response, it's in verse 25 there, chapter 9. He says, you know, they said, Jesus could not have healed you because we know Jesus is a sinner. That's what the Pharisees tell him. And the blind man replies to them. He says, listen, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind and now I see right? And then he continues on and he tells the Pharisees, he says, listen, if this man, Jesus, were not from God, he could not have done this thing. And that just made the Pharisees mad, right? Because he's schooling the Pharisees is what he's doing. They get mad at him. They kick him out, right? Because what did he say? He said, listen, if Jesus had not been sent from God, he couldn't have done this. I know that Jesus was sent from God because if he hadn't been, I would still be blind and I'm not, I see so he must have been sent from God. And you'd think they'd be happy. You'd think they'd be happy. Someone's healing blind people. Obviously sent from God, but no, right? So anyway, if healing a blind person wasn't bad enough, Jesus crossed the line when he did something even more amazing. What did he do? Well, in his miracles, the next thing that Jesus did that really upset Pharisees is that He raised someone from the dead. Now, Jesus raised at least three people from the dead. Lazarus was not the first, right? But Lazarus gets the most press. So we are going to look at Lazarus in John chapter 11, right? But before he had raised Lazarus from the dead, he raised the son of a widow from a town called Nain. You can find this in Luke chapter 7, I think. And he also also raised Jairus' daughter uh, in Luke chapter 8. But like I said Lazarus gets all the press. So we're going to touch on Lazarus. Now you find it in like I said John chapter 11. And Jesus gets word that Lazarus is ill. But Jesus doesn't go right away, right? And Lazarus dies. And when Jesus finally arrives, Lazarus had been in the tomb 4 days, right? Much to the chagrin of Mary and Martha who weren't so happy that Jesus took so long to get there. And Mary tells Jesus, "If you had been here, my brother would not have died." which is the truth. Had Jesus come earlier, he probably would have healed him before he died. Right? And some other people were even saying, you can read this in John chapter 11, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And the answer again is yes, he could have. He could have done that. Absolutely. But Jesus told his disciples before he went there in John chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, he told his disciples, he said, listen, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And so they go. Well, what is Jesus telling his disciples? What does that mean? What do you mean, what do you mean that for our sake, you're glad that you weren't there so that we may believe, right? I mean, what Jesus is saying, listen, it's, it's one thing to heal a man from his sickness. I've done that many times. You've seen me, right? It's another thing entirely to raise them from the dead, especially four days later. Why four days? Because everyone knows Jesus, like I said, could have healed him before he died. Everyone knows that had Jesus shown up on the day that he died, he could have healed him right on the spot. Because the other two people that he had raised from the dead, he showed up pretty much right around the time that they died. Jairus' daughter, for example, had just passed away before Jesus walked in. Right, so they hadn't, I mean, there had been no decay or anything that had set in, but yet they tell Jesus when he arrives for Lazarus, they say, uh, man, be careful when you open the tomb there because he's been dead four days and he's going to stink, right? So decay had set in, right? So to them, in their mindset, four days was too long. Had Jesus been there earlier, it would have been fine. But now that it had been four days, it's too long. There's nothing Jesus can do now. So that's what Jesus was telling his disciples. Listen, I want you to see that I have power over death. And I have power over the grave. I want you to see this so that you will believe. Believe what? You will believe when I'm resurrected. But they didn't understand it at the time. Right? He tells them so that they would believe as he would tell them also in John 11 that I am the resurrection and the life. Right? Whoever believes in me, those he die, though he dies, he, yet sh- he shall live. He wants them to believe this and understand it. So Jesus, in tears, remember Jesus wept, he walks up to the grave, they roll away the stone, Jesus gives thanks to God, to the Father, because remember, everything Jesus did, it was for the glory of God. And it says that in verse 43, when Jesus had done these things, he cried out with a loud voice, he says, Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus came out, just walks, or hops, or however he came out of the grave, remember he was bound in his grave clothes, I don't know how you... Come out of the grave, bound in your grave clothes. I'm not sure what that looks like. But he came out and they unbound him and they let him go, right? Go get a shower, Lazarus. Now this miracle caused major problems for Jesus. It caused major problems for Lazarus as well. Because it tells us that the chief priest wanted to kill Lazarus again because of his resurrection. Why? Because due to this resurrection, many of the Jews were leaving Judaism basically and now following Jesus. Because only God can raise people from the dead. And we're told, just even in what we read here to start in John chapter 12 about the triumphal entry, that many of those who worshiped Jesus as he entered Jerusalem on the donkey were those who had heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Right? His reputation had gone on ahead of him. And they were all there to meet him as he entered Jerusalem. But we're also told in verse 33, 53 excuse me, of John chapter 11 that at that point, from that day on, the high priests, the religious leaders, right, they all made plans to put Jesus to death. Basically what they did was they cemented the plans that they already had because they'd been trying to figure out how to kill him for a long time. Right? We already knew that the religious leaders and the high priests, and the Pharisees, and basically those in authority over the Jews thought Jesus was a sinner. We already knew that they thought he was blasphemous, right? We already knew that they wanted him killed, but now it's just like set in stone. We're going to kill him. We are going to kill him. So when you look at these miracles that Jesus performed, from healing people to raising people from the dead, you have to start thinking, well, what was it that made real Jesus a real threat? I mean, again, wouldn't people be excited about this? Seeing the power that Jesus had, knowing that that type of power only comes from God? Wouldn't people be excited about this? What was it that made him such a threat? I'm here to tell you. It was the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. People say Jesus never said that, Right? People will tell you, Jesus never said, I am God. And and you're right in a certain sense. You you go through the Bible, you're not going to find a line where he says, I am God in that way. I mean, he truly let his actions speak for himself. However, Jesus did tell this. This was the litmus test that Jesus told the Pharisees, the religious leaders, his enemies, because they were his enemies. He told them this. Listen, don't believe me unless I do the works of my father. And if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is, me, is in me and I am in the Father. So what Jesus said is that my miracles testify to the truth of who I am. So even if you're not going to believe me, look at what I've done and understand that that testifies to the truth of who I am. And you should believe me through what you're seeing done. Right? And So what was he doing? That claimed, that laid this claim, right, that spoke to this claim about him being God. Well, one thing he did was Jesus forgave sins. Right, you find this in John chapter five. And it said, you know, the paralytic man who they let down through the ceiling? Right? And so in John chapter 5 it says that they, you know, they, they brought him on a bed and they, and they couldn't get him in, there was too much of a crowd, so they went up on the ceiling and they, they, they you know, moved aside the tiles of the roof or whatever it is that they did and they lowered the man down in the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith and, and he saw the man, what did Jesus say? What did he tell him? He said, man, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say he didn't, the first thing he said was not like, you're healed, or get up and walk, or anything like that. He looked at him, and he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And of course, right away you could hear the complaints of the religious, because the Pharisees were there, and they were watching what was going on. And the scribes and the Pharisees, it tells us in verse 21 of, of Luke chapter 5, it says that they begin to question, who is this man who speaks such blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? Only God can forgive sins. They said, who's this man, Jesus? How dare he do such a thing? But it says that Jesus perceived their thoughts, right? He, kinda, he knew what they were thinking. And so he answers him. He says, why do you question in your hearts? Why do you question this in your hearts? He goes, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Right? He says, but so that you'll know that the son of man, remember, messianic term, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He tells the paralyzed man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately the guy stood up, picked up his bed, <laughs> right? And went home, glorifying God. Jesus told them, you want to see the authority I have? You, th- you want to, you know, only God can forgive sins? You want to see the authority that I have, the son of man? What's it easier for me to say, Right? Yes, I've already told him to forgive, but you want to, I have the authority to tell that to him. How do you know that? Well, well, let me tell him this. Rise up and walk. Boom. The guy gets up and walk. Okay, there you go. Right? What more do you need? But let's give you another example. John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus, Jesus heals the man at the pool of Beth- Bethsaida. Right? And when Jesus heals him, he tells him to take up his bed and walk. And the man does. Yet again, it's the Sabbath. Jesus loved doing these things on the Sabbath. I'm telling you, he did it purposely, right? Why? Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He he understood the true meaning of the Sabbath. It wasn't what the the law said nor what the Jews were putting on, the the priests were putting on people. So, but yeah, it's on the Sabbath. So the guy's then walking later. He's carrying his bed. It's the Sabbath day. And they stop him. They said, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. What are you doing? And he says, well, the man who healed me told me to pick up my bed and walk. And so I am, right? And we know already, for this reason, Jesus healing people on the Sabbath, you know, that they wanted to kill Jesus and everything like that. But also in response to this later, Jesus answers them about this. And he says, listen, my father is working until now and I am working. That's in John chapter five. And what did Jesus mean when he responded to the Pharisees in this way? Well the answer was in the next verse in John 5.18 it says this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him even more because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he was even calling God his own father. Making himself what? Equal with God. Oh Jesus was claiming equality with God? Jesus was claiming to be God? I thought he never said that. He said that quite a bit. All right? And if you don't, if that one doesn't do it for you, let's go over this one really quick. It's in John chapter 8. Right? Starting in, you can, When you go through John chapter 8, you can start in verse 39, but, or you can just read the little chapter, I don't care. It's really interesting because you need to go back to understand where Jesus is teaching in John chapter 8 when he's going through the teaching. And he's teaching in the temple. He's on temple grounds. He's teaching in the treasury area right? So that's important. And he's answering questions from the scribes and the Pharisees. And I really wish I could have been there to hear these conversations because this is a back and forth conversation between him and the Pharisees. And it's probably a little hectic and it's probably even heated, right? Because they're throwing things at him and he's throwing answers back at them and they're not agreeing with him and he's just rebuking them. And it's just, it would have been a fantastic conversation, right? To be a fly on the wall, to watch this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus and the, they're having this conversation, and it gets to Abraham. And Jesus knows that they say Abraham is their father. So, so Jesus says, Listen, if Abraham was your father, you'd be doing the works of Abraham, right? I mean, you tell me he's your father, and if he truly was your father, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But instead, what is it that you're doing? You're trying to kill me. He says, if, if, if God was your father, you would love me because I came from God. And then Jesus tells him this. He says, listen, your father is the devil, right? Your father is the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies, right? Nice words, Jesus is telling him, right? And, and he's just telling him flat out, listen, you're, if Abraham's not your father. God's not your father. Satan is your father. You're trying to kill me. You're not doing the works of Abraham. You're not doing the works of God. Satan is your father. And so they respond back to Jesus in verse 48, and they say, aren't you a Samaritan and have a demon? Right? That they're trying to insult him. Aren't you a demon-possessed Samaritan? And of course, Jesus tells him, no, (laughs) I'm not. Right? I honor my father, he says, I don't seek my own glory. Just so you know, demon-possessed Samaritans (laughs) will seek their own glory. That's what Jesus is telling them. No, listen, I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm doing the will of my father. I'm not demon possessed. Right? And then Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Oh. Okay, that stopped them. And they're like, wait a minute. Are you telling us you're greater than Abraham, our father? Because Abraham saw death. Are you telling us you're greater than Abraham? If you want to, you know, read the book of Hebrews, Jesus is greater than everything right? He says, who do you make yourself out to be, they ask him. And he answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So again, Jesus is telling him, right? God is my father. I am the son of God. This, right, he's claiming equality with God. He's telling them flat out who he is. He says, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, he says. But I do know him, and I keep his word. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And then, and then that, they're still just, they can't believe what Jesus is uttering at this point. And they say, well, what? You're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Right? And he tells them, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what does it say that they did next? They picked up stones to throw at him because he. Himself, but Jesus had gone. He left the temple. He just disappeared. What did Jesus say that immediately wanted that made them want to kill him on the spot? Right. Well, he claimed to be the great I am. That's exactly what he said. He claimed to be God, right? Exodus three, Moses, the burning bush. And then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and they say to me, right? And I tell them the God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask, what is your name? What am I to say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. They knew that scripture. They knew the scripture, So when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, understand that Jesus was claiming to be God incarnate. The Jews knew the scripture. They understood what Jesus was teaching. They didn't accept it. They considered the blasphemous statement. They wanted to kill him on the spot. If it hadn't been blasphemous, if Jesus was just a crazy man, they wouldn't have wanted to kill him. But Jesus did something else that upset them as well. And that's what we celebrate today. It's Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry, right? When Jesus was publicly worshiped as the Messiah as he entered Jerusalem. Remember when Jesus started his ministry, you know, he would tell people, don't say anything, right? Don't tell anybody. It's not my time yet. Don't tell anybody. Even told his mom that, <laughs> right? right? You need to turn you need to help us out here with the wine. That's not really my time yet, Mom. But he did it. His first miracle that's recorded. But now it was, obviously. So when he came riding into town on a donkey, as prophesied in Zechariah nine, this large, enthusiastic crowd that was waiting for him started singing Psalm one eighteen which is a messianic psalm, right? Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Know that song? It says, save us. That's what Hosanna means, save us. Oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's what they were singing, Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. They were openly worshiping, Jesus as the coming Messiah in front of all of Jerusalem right? they openly received Jesus as the Messiah now yes they were thinking in political terms and Jesus was not coming to save them from Rome in that way but regardless they weren't wrong in declaring Jesus as the Messiah right? they called him king he is king they worshiped him as such, and he accepted it. The Pharisees, listen, the Pharisees, they saw this, they heard this, they tell Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up. That's not because they were just noisy, okay? The Pharisees are not telling the disciples and all the people on this, the street who are singing Right, Psalm 118, they're not telling them to shut up because they're just a loud, obnoxious crowd that gotten out of hand. They're telling them to shut up because they consider it heretical and blasphemous that this crowd is declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. They're like, Jesus, silence your followers now. Right? They're bordering on heretical here. <clears throat> this is a problem. And Jesus rebukes them. And he says, listen, if I command them to be silent, the stones are going to cry out. In other words, you can't stop this. I am who they say. I am the Messiah. And they're worshiping me in truth. They might not have a complete understanding of why I came. They're going to find out. But they're not wrong in what they sing. And it's so true that if I were to tell them to shut up, then the rocks on this street would start singing themselves. It was a remarkable moment. right? This day, Palm Sunday, the day that we celebrate the King of Peace riding into the City of Peace on a donkey. Listen, a donkey is not a royal war horse. So one of the things that they expected of the Messiah is, you know, of the coming king is that he was going to come in, as you would expect a king to come in to town. He wasn't going to be lowly and humble on a donkey. He was going to come in on the royal war horse, right? I mean, donkeys were not royal pedigree, usually. But what does that show us? It shows us a demonstration of the character of Jesus, right? He came to serve and not to be served, right? And with that picture, we also see the character of his kingdom, which is a humble, hard-working servants of God. See, who Jesus was went beyond the popular understanding of who they thought he was. Yes, they thought he was the Messiah, but they were thinking politically. They're like, someone is going to save us from the Romans. Hallelujah, Right? When they're singing Hosanna, it means save us. So they're telling Jesus, save us, from the Romans. Save us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Save us. They're declaring Jesus to me Well, guess what? Jesus it did come to save them. Absolutely. And he's going to do that through the cross. Who Jesus is goes beyond the popular understanding that of, what people, of who, what people think about Jesus today as well. It hasn't really changed at all. We still have these weird ideas about who Jesus is or why Jesus is coming or, or what Jesus' purpose is. I got into a huge long discussion this week with someone from the Hebrew Roots Movement online telling me that, you know, he kept referring to me as Christian and then sometimes he would call me pagan Christian. But, you know, the Hebrew Roots Movement doesn't believe really the New Testament. They think that we've basically taken the Pentateuch and disordered it with New Testament teaching, and we don't understand the purpose of anything that really in the Bible, and they really don't understand why Jesus, or Jesus, they don't even really want to admit to Jesus in the first place, but they will admit that Jesus existed, but they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, obviously, and Jesus had one purpose, which was to save Israel from the Romans Jesus never came for anybody else he wasn't here for the Gentiles he wasn't here to save the world you know, so all New Testament scripture they throw out the window I don't need to go into the conversation but who Jesus is goes beyond the popular understanding of Jesus today we, we have these ideas about Jesus the world has these ideas about Jesus he's a great moral teacher he's whatever right well, no Jesus is who he said he was Jesus is God right? Jesus is the son of God Jesus is God the son and Jesus came with a purpose. And when Jesus, during his ministry, what did he do? He, he corrected religious leaders. He corrected false teachers. He corrected anybody who was self-righteous, quite frankly, even if it was one of his own disciples, right? He despised hypocrisy. He, he, he always spoke the truth. He never watered it down for anybody. He never modified the truth to make it more culturally acceptable or palatable. Oh, that offends you? Oh, let me let me go and sh- 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 tuck that part out. All right? No, he never did anything like that. He wasn't worried if they were offended. It didn't bother him. Because it's the truth. And so because of that, Jesus was what? He was rejected. He was condemned. He was a wanted man. He was a revolutionary. He was an outlaw. right? Your association with Jesus back then could get you rejected and condemned as well. It did. It got people killed, as a matter of fact. Right? And not much has changed over 2,000 years. His popularity back then was offensive to his enemies. And guess what? His popularity today is still offensive to his enemies. Right? And we're just seeing the beginning of things here in the United States. But guess what? Here's where our hope lies. Jesus hasn't changed in 2,000 years. He hasn't changed at all. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Son of Man. He is the Messiah, Prince. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the spotless Lamb. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. Equal to the Father in every way. The exact imprint of His nature. The radiance of the glory of God, as it tells us in Hebrews chapter 1. The evidence speaks for itself. Right? C.S. Lewis wrote, among, among others, said that Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. Right? Th- those are your only choices. He left you no other choice. So the choice is up to you. Who do you accept Jesus as? Right? Who are you going to follow? The world and its view of Jesus? Or what would Jesus says about himself? Who he is. Are you going to accept Jesus for who he truly is? Who he testifies to be? Who his miracles prove he is? I mean, that's what Jesus told the Pharisees. You don't want to believe me? Believe my works. You're telling me that these things can only be done by God. Or are we going to continue to reject him? Right. Those who continue to reject Jesus are, going to con- are continuing to ignore the truth. They're continuing to let their arrogance and their ignorance blind them to the truth of God's word. But maybe you're looking for someone to fight your battles. Maybe you're looking for someone to understand your pain. Maybe you're looking for someone to shoulder your burdens. Maybe you're looking for someone to forgive your sins. Maybe you're looking for someone to save you from death. Well, we don't need to look any further. Right? It's Jesus. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to fight the ultimate battle to set us free from the law of sin and death. That's why he came. That's why he marched into Jerusalem. didn't really march, but rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with his face set towards the cross. That's why all his miracles testified to the truth of who he is. That's why the religious leaders hated him so much because they would not accept Jesus as the Messiah. They didn't want to accept the truth. That's not our version of who the Messiah is supposed to be like. He doesn't fit our version of the Messiah. He hangs out with sinners. He hangs out with the unclean. He goes and hangs out with so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. Those guys, no, 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 bad news. We don't hang out with those type of people. Messiah would never do that. Yes, he would. Because he came to save those people. Right? There's a quote about... Palm Sunday. It says, Palm Sunday reminds us that the reign of Christ is far greater than any man's mind could ever conceive or plan. Man looked for someone to fight their battles in the present day world, yet God had the ultimate plan of sending his son to fight the final battle over death. People were looking for someone to come fight their worldly battles for him, to come fight their politics for him, to come fight all the oppression that they were receiving from the government for him. Come fight these things. Release us from this bondage. Come overthrow Rome. And God said, well, I sent my son. And he's here. He's here to fight a battle that you didn't know you needed. It's a battle over sin and death. And I'm here. He's here. He's here to seek and save the lost. He's here for you. Accept him. He's not necessarily going to take you out of the oppression. He's not necessarily going to overthrow the government. He's not necessarily going to do these things for you. But he is here to save you. He is here to give you hope. And eternal life can be found through him. Accept him. Accept Jesus. So you want to be part of a revolution? Because I love being part of a revolution. Right? The Jesus revolution. Be born again. Repent. Ask for forgiveness. Become a new creation. Give your life to Jesus. Tell that. Tell that to those who you know need Jesus. Who are looking for the hope in today. Right? We're looking for someone to come save us out of this misery that we're going through right now. Who's going to come save us? And you can say, well, Jesus is. He's not coming to take you out of it yet. But He's coming to be with you in the midst of it. And he's coming to save you from sin and death. Because if he takes you and fixes all the political problems, heals all your infirmities, but you never surrender your life to him, and you never gave your life to Jesus. Then all those things were worthless. Jesus came for the most important thing. Right? Your life. Your soul. Your redemption. That's why Jesus came. Amen?